Hello again. So today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 7. It's on page 978 of your Black Bibles. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. This is God's word. We have been in a series on the book of Ephesians for the entire year. We're making our way. We're not going to finish by the end of the summer or by the, by the time we go into a new, new series for the summer. We'll pick back up in a couple of months again. But we are there today and we are at a difficult place. And it's a good place though because this is a word given to us by the Lord. But we do need his help. I need his help walking through something like this. So let's pray before we begin. God, we are thankful to you for all things. You have given to us our life. You've given to us our breath. And you say that you have given to us everything. May we take stock of that now. May we revel in your goodness to us now. Part of that is your word. And your word is intended to bring us life. Your word is intended us to bring us back to that place where we were intended to live. To remind us of our purpose here on earth. And our purpose is all-encompassing. It is thorough. We have been created for something amazing, something special. I pray that you would reveal that to us now. God, again, this is a, a hard text. It's been hard for me. It will be hard to hear for some people. And yet I pray, oh God, that we would have our spirits lifted. That in seeing the restrictions that there are for our sexuality, that you would show us again your great faithfulness and love and that we would learn to live as you intended in freedom and joy, unity and love. So be with us now by the great spirit we ask. We need him. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Bible says essentially two things about our sexuality. It is good and beautiful, and it is problematic. It is good and beautiful because our sexuality is a gift from the Lord. It is a gift from God provided to us by Him. He has built into us maleness and femaleness. And so in a sense, our sexuality is a part of who we are. And so it was meant to be celebrated, reveled in, and enjoyed. Our sexuality is good and it is beautiful. But as many of you know, it is also problematic. 
It is problematic because as a result of the fall, we struggle to live in it well, to use it well. And we give ourselves over to things that we should not. And this misuse of our sexuality has led to so many problems. To feelings of deep stress and sorrow and guilt. For many people, maybe some of you here today, sexuality is not beautiful. It's not good. It is profane. It is troubling. Our sexuality is beautiful. It is problematic. But I'm going to add another one that I didn't, I wasn't going to add until a few things happened. Our sexuality is serious, utterly serious. So I think the quote of last couple, the last couple of weeks and maybe this entire year came from a guy living in Alberta, Canada, when he said this, I was keeping an eye on it. What was he keeping his eye on? It was this. Somewhere. Maybe some of you saw that this week or last week. Can you see what that is? A guy mowing his lawn with behind him a giant tornado. That's a guy named, I can't really say his name, Theunus Wessels. I think he's originally from South Africa. And cutting the grass was on his to-do list. And obviously nothing was going to get in the way of his to-do list. He sounds like my wife. And when, he, when his wife, his wife, woke up from a nap, she came out, she saw him, and she saw this, and she took a picture. I was keeping an eye on it, he says. Now, these are sorts of the sorts of things that pastors call gift-wrapped sermon illustrations. Now, I'm going to just quickly go dark and deep that I think that we tend to treat our sexual problems our sexual impurity, our sexual immorality, in the same way this guy treated that tornado. I worry that many of us are using our sexuality in a way that is stirring up a great storm behind us. Misusing this God-given gift that is creating something behind us that we don't see and don't believe to be serious. We act like nothing is the matter. We are mowing the lawn. We're keeping an eye on it. So this is actually the third time I have tried to preach this sermon. The third time. The first time came about a month and a half ago, and I was taken out by a kidney stone. I couldn't preach the text. Okay. Last Sunday, a stomach bug was raging through our house. I got it, and I was unable to preach last week. Before those two times, I have never missed a Sunday because of illness in my entire life. And I've been to a lot of Sundays. I've had to do a lot of stuff on Sundays. I have never missed a Sunday because of illness. Now, my wise wife said to me at this point, what is God trying to tell you about this sermon? At the very least, I think he's telling me and hopefully you that our sexuality is serious. Far more serious than we realize, not just for our society, not just for our families, not just for our well-being here on earth, but for, and I do not say this lightly, for our eternal souls. But I do want to start with some good news. I just want to kind of put the good news out there first, that our sexuality is being reclaimed by God. Though it was lost in the fall, though it was hampered, diminished, He is reclaiming it now. 
He is taking what he wants and he is using it for his glory and our joy. We are to see our sexuality as beautiful, not profane, beneficial, not denigrating, freeing, not enslaving. And friends, the sins that we have committed, the sins we are committing, the sins that we will commit, are forgiven, nailed to the cross. See that before we even begin today. But we do need to go there, so let's get into this, this passage, Ephesians 5, 3 through 7. Three points to help us through. One, know your purpose. Two, fear the dangers. And three, do what helps. One, know your purpose. Hope you have your Bibles out in front of you. Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Okay, so let's just take a 30,000 foot view right now. Let's just say what this text is about. It's simple enough that we must not practice sexual immorality. That's Paul's point. We must practice sexual purity. No to sexual immorality, yes to sexual purity. In other words, Paul is saying that our sexuality is something that should be protected. Something that should be boundaried in a way that we keep in a way that, so that it keeps it sacred. No to sexual immorality, no, yes to sexual purity for the sake of protecting what God has given to us. Now let's quickly define what sexual immorality is. That's what we need to see. Now if you're like me, when you see a word like that, you go, well, well that cannot be me. Sexual immorality sounds really bad. It sounds like something criminals do. But for Paul, and he gets this word from Jesus, that word sexual morality comes from the Greek word porneia, but you can hear something in that word. That has a very, very broad definition. Sexual morality is any sex that happens outside of marriage. Hear that again. Sexual morality is literally any sex that happens outside of marriage. It is the willful sexual activity that happens outside of the one-man, one-woman marriage covenant. So it's premarital sex. It's viewing pornography. It's lustful thoughts. It's homosexual practice. It's adultery. That is the teaching of the Bible. The great teaching of the Bible is that sex is reserved For marriage, and I mean real marriage. I mean the ceremony that you commit to before God and witnesses and the state saying that you commit to another person in body and soul, that you make a covenant with them. It's not just saying I love that person a lot. Sex is reserved for the marriage covenant, the strong bond between husband and wife. And so any sexual activity that happens outside of that is Sexual immorality. That is the truth. We must speak it. Now what's interesting is that Paul doesn't just say that sexual morality is what happens with our bodies. We usually would think that sexual morality is a physical thing, and it is for sure. But he also says two other things. First, that sexual morality can happen with our words. With our words. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. You know what that is. I don't even need to describe it. A dirty joke, obscene details of a sexual encounter, or as was made infamous in our last presidential election, 
locker room talk. Our sexuality should be so pure that we do not even speak of it. So we can be sexually immoral with our bodies, with our mouths, but he also says with our minds. With our minds. Verse 3. But sexual morality and all purity or covetousness must not even be named among you. What is covetousness? That's a Bible word. Well, you know what the 10th commandment says? It's thou, thou shall not covet. And it's not just about coveting money and possessions. It also says that it's about sex. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Now, coveting is not something that you do. You can take part in it, but it's something that begins first with the mind. It is the sin of the heart. That is what begins the other two, the physical, the speech. It is the beginning where it's the, the beginning point is when we be, begin to think about it. When we desire something and our desires take over, they overflow. James says that they are over desires. And so Jesus famously said that we can commit adultery even when we look at the opposite sex lustfully. So all of this is so important to Paul. And it's so serious to Paul that he says that sexual immorality should not even be named among the people of God. Okay, so I want to take a, a deep breath here. I want, to take, I want to pump the brakes. Applying this is not so easy. And the church has not always done the best job of it. For 2,000 years, we have tried to apply teachings of sec- the, the, sex- the teachings of sexual ethics from the Bible, and it, su- it usually goes one way or the other, one way or the other. The first way is by intimating or teaching directly that somehow sex is evil. Sex is evil. Many in the church have taught this. They've taught, they've intimated at least that we should fear it. That we should fear because there's something dirty about sex. There's something wrong in it. The greatest theologian of all time, St. Augustine, believed that at some level. Obviously, the Catholic Church believes that at some level. Otherwise, they would let their priests marry, but they do not. Now, we have to ask the question very clearly, openly, is sex evil? No. No. Not even close. We were created as sexual beings, male and female, before the fall ever happened. God gave us sex within marriage for making kids, for intimacy, for enjoyment. Go read 1 Corinthians 7 sometime. Go read it. Or if you really want to blush, go read Song of Solomon. I bet no one has. Song of Solomon. Read it together. Sex is not evil. That's one side. That's one way the church can get this wrong. Now, here's the other side. Here's the other, other way we can get this wrong. And where I think Paul is going is that we believe that sex is an entitlement. Many in the church today believe that we are entitled to sex. We see sex as just another appetite, like we need water or we need food. And so we just need to give ourselves over to it in the ways that we want to. What ends up happening is not that we begin to think that all sex is okay, It's that we begin to set up rules for ourselves. That is okay, but that isn't. We judge other people all the time. That sex is not okay, but this is going to be okay for me. Now, of course, we say that to the scriptures as well. 
We look at them and we say, okay, Paul, that's fine for you, but it's not fine for me. And we end up putting this ethic on it. Does this make me happy? Does this make me happy? Does this sexual practice, does it serve my needs? Not, is this what God wants for me? And I said that this is a problem in the church, and it is. So much more than I realized when I first became a pastor. I'm dealing with it, working through it, and we need to listen to it. But this is not a new phenomenon today. Paul was speaking into a time and a culture where sexual morality was a problem. He wouldn't have brought it up otherwise. Prostitution, sexual worship, polygamy, sex outside of marriage. He was literally speaking to a people, one of their gods was a sex god. Sex in that culture was the path of liberation and happiness. Sex was the path of fulfillment. That was 2,000 years ago, and we are there again today. And if he were here today, if he was speaking, he would say the same thing. You are not entitled to sex. Now why? Now that's the point of this point. Why are we not entitled to sex? Why does our sexuality have boundaries on it according to the word? Is God just a a prudish God? Is he just uptight? Does he just want to make our lives miserable? That cannot be the answer. He is a loving God. He wants us to thrive. So why are we not entitled to sex? Why is sex reserved only for those in covenantal marriage? And here's the answer. It's basic. Because we have been created. We have been created. And all creations have one thing in common. We have purpose. We have been created with purpose. A spoon was created to scoop up food. A painting was created to be admired. An antibiotic is created to heal the sick. So we, as people, as humans, have been created. And that means we must have a specific purpose. What we need to hear is that going against our purpose is not just breaking a law in God's mind. It is breaking and killing a soul. Often, even around here, you'll see uh, reports of a, a beached whale, of a whale that throws itself up on the beach for various reasons. And when we see something like that, how do we respond to that? How do we feel? Well, we know that it's not okay. We know innately that there's something wrong with that. Whales are not meant to be on the shore. They are meant to be in the water. Now, why is that? Because when they're on the shore, their physical weight literally crushes them to death. Whales, their purpose is to swim in the water. Friends, we have been created with purpose. And what you need to hear is that that includes our sexuality. Paul's point is that when we use sex, when we engage in sex that goes outside of this created purpose, we in a sense become like beached whales. And the weight of our sin crushes us. Now we need to take this one step further because Paul is not talking to humans here. Paul is talking to Christians. For Christians, we have not just been created by God. We have been recreated by Christ. Ephesians 5.3 
But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Now listen, as is proper among the saints. The saints. Sexual immorality is so serious because friends of who you are, you are now saints. You have been saved by the blood, given the goodness and righteousness of Jesus. And now you are set apart for him. That is what it means to be a Christian. You, God's chosen, beloved, newly created child, have been set apart for him. You are a saint. And so now your purpose on earth as a new creation is higher and holier than you can possibly Imagine. Now, I just want to give you kind of a picture of this. I don't know why this is the first thing that came to my mind, but I'm going to go with it. So say you are in the Louvre in Paris and you see the famous Mona Lisa. Amazing. The most valuable painting on the planet. And then you see someone take it off the wall, open up the frame, tear it out, and they go out to their car and they begin to wash their car with the Mona Lisa. Now, how would we feel about that? Even if you don't love the Mona Lisa, you would be sick to your stomach because the painting was not made for that. It was meant to be admired and studied and gazed upon and protected. To use it in that way is worse than awful, worse than defiling, tragic. God says that he created you. He says that we were created in his image. And then we were recreated by the blood of Christ, made new again in his image. And so this means that you are far more valuable, far more beautiful than any Van Gogh painting. Porn and premarital sex and lust are a defilement of the beautiful. But to use sex as it was intended is a glory. So I just want to end this point by asking the question, what is the purpose of our sexuality? Why is sex reserved for the marriage relationship? Now, we could spend a lot of time here, but I want to get right to the heart of this, that the purpose of our sex ultimately is to reflect the faithfulness of God. Hear that again. The purpose of our sexuality and sex within marriage is to reflect the faithfulness of God. It is designed to point to and reflect the love that God has, the faithfulness God has within the Trinity, within the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then out of this, the faithfulness and love that God had towards us. God is faithful. And he gave us sex, so, this thing, so that we could remember this, so that we could remember to be pointed to this, so that we could reflect this. One writer puts it this way, that sex was invented by God so that we could say to each other in marriage, I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. That is what God is saying to us always. I am faithful to you. And we reflect that in our marriages. And so let's just end this point by asking this question. Does your sexuality reflect the faithfulness of God? 
if you are single, if you are married, if you are engaged, does your sexuality point to God's amazing faithfulness? Know your purpose. Two, fear the dangers. Fear the dangers. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, and kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So why should we try to be pure? Why should we try to protect our sexuality? The answer is because we are created in His image. We are created to reflect His faithfulness to us. This is how we were made as saints set apart for Jesus. We are to reflect His faithfulness to us in in our sexuality. But Paul actually raises another point. He raises another motivation. And it is not something that we talk a lot about here, but we cannot skip it over. He says in a manner of speaking that we must fear the consequences of our sexual immorality. We must fear what will happen if we enter into willful, unrepentant sexual impurity. And there are two things here. Let's hit hit each of them. The first thing is that it could lead to a loss of our inheritance. Verse 5 again, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, Ephesians 1 happened a long time ago, a couple months ago, but just remember what he talked about with our inheritance. As he's reclaiming his people for himself, he is doing so so that we can gain his inheritance. Ephesians 1.11 In him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 14 God in Christ is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Friends, we have to understand that God's main plan for us is not that we have our best life now. This life is not mainly about our best life now, but the life that we will lead in the future. Our inheritance will be all of God's blessings worth more than all the pleasures of money and power and yes, even sex here on earth. And yet what Paul says is that if we allow our sexual immorality to overtake us, we will lose out on this. We will lose out on all of it. So you could put it this way. You could see it in terms of costliness. Our sexual immorality is costly. It is way more costly than we realize. So I, I saw a graphic this week that talked about the costliness of our coffee, of our coffee. You know how much you spend on coffee. I know how much I do. Let's just do the math really quickly. If you spend $3.50 a day, that's $105 a month, which amounts to about $1,260 a year. Now they say if you invested that and you get about a 6% return on that investment, after 30 years you'll get about $106,000 back. Now, maybe your coffee is worth $106,000. It is for me. But let's go deep and dark now. 
Is your sexual immorality worth the loss of the inheritance of the Father? The reason that we commit sexual immorality is because our hearts say that it's worth it. It is worth our time, our money, our spiritual energy. And we must ask ourselves, is that true? We must fear what we will lose. But it, also we, but it is also the case that we must fear what will happen to us. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. A few summers ago, my family and I took a trip up to the, down to the Cape, and we went up the Cape to Provincetown one day. Beautiful. We went out to this state beach up there. Just amazing. And of course, we're swimming in the water right on the edge of the Atlantic. And I'm not really paying attention. I'm kind of going out pretty far. But at some point, I realized that there was something different. Something was amiss. And I looked around, and out of thousands of people, I was the only person in the water. And I turn around and I, and I look up on the beach and everyone was looking at me, but actually not at me. They were looking behind me and there was a seal swimming around. Now, if you know anything about the Cape, it's not that they were afraid of the seal. It's that they were afraid of the thing that was coming to get the seal or at least could be there to get the seal. I am still amazed, living in New England, that... Jaws visits New England every year. That is amazing to me. So what did I do? Did I stay? No, I jumped out as fast as I could. And I'm a terrible swimmer, but I made good time. (laughs) Paul says, get out of the water. Get out of the water. Get out of your sexual immorality. Fear the wrath of God. God's wrath is the active move of his righteousness to protect the holiness, his own holiness, and to protect those whom he loves. His wrath is his pure move of his might and power and justice to protect his own purity and to protect those whom he has adopted as his own. What Paul says very clearly here is that the offense of sexual immorality is damnation. Now, we need to quickly ask this question. Are we not condemned already? No one here, including this pastor, is free from sexual immorality. We all, from time to time, will sin with our bodies, our mouths, our minds. Are we lost? Is that what Paul is saying? Really, we're asking, does the blood of Christ actually cover us? Does it cover our sins, our worst sexual failures? And please hear me when I say this. Yes, it does. His death covers it all. It covers what you have done, what you will do today, what you will do in the future. Jesus' blood makes even the foulest clean we often sing. So who is Paul talking about? Who are the sexually immoral. Remember what we said that the purpose of sex is. The purpose of sex is to reflect the faithfulness of God. 
Now hold that in your minds. The faithfulness of God was displayed most vividly in the culminating work of the gospel to save us. God was faithful to the point of giving up his son on our behalf. Our faithfulness is seen and displayed when we use our sex to his glory. His faithfulness to us is displayed in the gospel. Now what happens if we deny this? What happens if we deny his faithfulness to us? Then we are told we cannot receive the kingdom. What will happen to us is that we will receive his wrath because Jesus cannot stand in front of that at that point. We must believe on him so that he can stand in in the way of the wrath of the Father. Put all this together. What is unrepentant sexual immorality? It is saying to God, I do not believe your faithfulness to me. It is the act of saying, I do not believe the gospel. That is why Paul says in verse 7, Therefore do not become partners with them. That word partners there is a Greek word, the Greek word semetikos, and it means something like sharing in something with someone else. It is to share in something so much that you actually begin to become like that thing. It is to share in a sex outside of marriage. It is to share in a sex with a computer screen. It is to share in the sex of adultery. And you share in it so deeply, you give into it so deeply, that you stop trying to stop. You become unrepentant. You stop caring. You give yourself to it. You say no to God. You say no to his forgiveness. You say no to his gospel. Friends, I do not say this lightly. I simply repeat what Jesus said. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Friends and brothers and sisters, fear the dangers. Last point, let us do what helps. Do what helps. So this is not easy. And I know this firsthand. I don't even want to talk about it let alone try to deal with the sin in my own heart. And yet this passage is here for us. And Paul, I know even if you can't see it, is being so helpful to us. And so I just want to outline those very quickly. What are the things that can help us stay pure to get us out of where we've been in and live and walk in line with his gospel? Surround, sorry, speak, surround, see, and surrender. First, do what helps by speaking thanksgiving. Speak thanksgiving. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For Paul, there is a very close connection between what we say and what we do. If we are speaking in sexually immoral ways, that is probably coming from our hearts. But it also has an amplifying effect. It makes it go back inside on, uh, on us. The more we speak about it, the more we speak sexually immoral things, the more willing we are probably to engage in it. Which is why he gives this antidote. Speak thanksgiving instead. Speak thanksgiving. I love the underlying idea. You have everything that you need. 
You have everything you need to be thankful for. Sexual immorality, remember, comes from an entitled belief that we don't believe we have enough. We need what we think we need. Paul is saying, no, you have everything that you need. And so speak it. Whether you are married or single or engaged, speak your thanksgiving. Say it out loud in prayers, in your journal, to others. Speak thanksgiving. Two, surround. Surround yourself with people who will encourage your purity. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words. There's that emphasis on words again. He's saying, ignore the people who are speaking sexual immorality into your life, who are speaking mistruth to you. This can come in the form of TV or magazines or books or TV shows or especially people. Now do the flip side of this. Surround yourself with people who will speak purity into your life and heart, who will speak the gospel to your soul. Be around people with incredible character and purity who will hold you accountable. Surround yourself. Three, see. See. See the faithful king. Now, Paul jumps into this thing on sexual morality, this little section, and it feels disjointed, but it's not. It comes right out of verse 2. Remember what verse 2 said, Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In a few months, we're going to be talking about marriage. Paul is going to unpack the mystery of marriage for us. And he's essentially going to say that our marriages are meant to point to Jesus. They are meant to point to the gospel that Jesus, by his life and death and resurrection, has wed himself to us. He is the faithful one. He is the faithful one. When he went to the cross... He had been tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin. He was faithful to his Father and to us. He was so faithful that he literally died for us. He died to remain faithful to us. As you seek to get this right, as you seek to glorify God with your sexuality, see King Jesus. See his life and his death and his resurrection. Let his loving and faithful act wash over you and heal you and lift your spirits and give you a new vision for singleness and marriage. May your sexuality reflect his faithfulness to us. Speak, surround, see, and last one, surrender. Surrender. You must surrender your life your whole life to God in Christ. That is the call of the Christian. That's what he's saying. He would not say this if this were not the thing. It is not easy to follow this path. It is hard work. It is effort. Resisting sexual morality is so difficult. But we have been called to something glorious and beautiful and good. We have been called to carry, to take up our own crosses. And so let these words from C.S. Lewis ring in your mind and your heart. Die before you die. There is no chance after. Die every day. Die to who you once were. Take on Christ who is making you to be beautiful. He is reclaiming what was lost. 
When we surrender to him, he is reclaiming what we have defiled. And he is making us like him. He is the faithful one. He is the faithful one. And we are becoming like him. For his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. May we think and speak faithfulness, your, your faithfulness even now. We are thankful for all that you have done for us, O oh Lord. The fact that we are in this place thinking, coming against this text, hearing your spirit speak to our hearts means that you have been faithful to us. And you did not have to. We sinned against you. We were at war with you. And yet the overflow of your love and faithfulness made you remain. And we are thankful to you. And God, you have given us this gift of sexuality. You have made us male and female. And in marriage, you are taking the two halves and you are making them whole. We thank you for that. God, I continue to pray for our marriages that you would strengthen them, bring them happiness, bring them joy. God, for those who are stuck, God, for those who are stuck in the muck and the mire of sexual morality, whatever it looks like, whatever it is, to whatever degree it is, God, I pray that you would speak to them now, that you would give them new hearts, that you would pull them out of where they're in, Some of them are stuck. Some of them feel like they will never be able to get past this thing. God, speak your comfort to them. And then help them. Give them enough courage to stand up and walk out of the situations that they're in. And God, I finally pray for our church. God, would you help us to become a sexually pure church? And a church that does not disdain sex that glories in it. And also a church that does not condemn those who are struggling out of what they're in, but seeks to help and speak peace and restore. And may we be a church that holds one another accountable. That we would not forget together your wrath. God, this is a hard text. But it is for us is for your glory. It is for your joy, for our joy. Would you impart that to us today? In Jesus' name, amen.